Welcome, friends. You're listening to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I am the Reverend Mary Vano, and as our guest host today, we have Susan Hiller. Susan is a grief counselor and a volunteer hospice chaplain and a certified lay chaplain with Community of Hope. I invited Susan to join me today because it seems to me that a lot of us are grieving right now. In fact, there's a lot to grieve. The pandemic and the way that it has changed our lives, the economic and financial implications, as well as political unrest and racial tensions. And in the middle of that, the struggles of life and death continue. So Susan, can we start with a basic definition of grief? The basic definition of grief is, quote, the normal process of reacting to a loss. But I like to take it a bit further because it comes from an old French word that means to burden. And it's also related to a Latin word meaning heavy or weighty. I think of grief as a heavy, weighty burden. I like that sort of physical sense of what grief is, because it seems to me that when we're grieving, we feel it in our bodies. And when you even think about what someone looks like when they're grieving, you think that they almost look like they're carrying a heavy burden. But let's go back to that word reacting or reaction. Yes, it is a reaction to a loss, but the loss of something to which we had an attachment. The greater the attachment, the more intense the reaction, thus deeper the grief. But as we know, grief can be a reaction to many types of losses. Death, change in one's health, financial insecurity, uncertainty about many aspects of the future, and on and on. Mary asks us how grief affects us. Well, it does so in many different ways and can produce many different types of symptoms. Just to sort of put things into a little box, I like to summarize these symptoms into four categories. First, feelings, maybe sadness, anger, anxiety, helplessness, or something like that. Secondly, physical sensations, short of breath, lack of energy, weakness, nausea, and so on. Thirdly, my category is thoughts. Thoughts can be confusion, disbelief, preoccupation, hallucinations, etc. And finally, behaviors. Ones who are grieving can exhibit sleep disturbance, crying or sighing, appetite change, perhaps social withdrawal. But I want to emphasize that all of these are normal unless they're taken to extremes. If someone sleeps all the time or doesn't sleep at all, if someone doesn't eat anything or eats all the time, those are extremes. That happens, help is needed. That's helpful because there are lots of ways that we can exhibit the symptoms of grief. And I think it really is important to recognize that almost all of it is normal. And then to kind of realize that there is also a point where we need to ask for help when our patterns of behavior become extreme. I am reminded of how scripture teaches us about grief. There's no treatise on grief in Holy Scripture, but there are characters, people, our ancestors in the faith who, just like us, experienced grief in their lives, and we kind of get to see through them some of what grief can look like. In particular, I think of Mary Magdalene, that story that we read on Easter from John chapter 20. She stands at the tomb, and she's already realized that it's empty, but she doesn't know what to, how to understand that yet, and so she just stays there weeping. While she weeps, she can't even recognize Jesus when he's standing 
right there with her. Or there's also Mary and Martha. When their brother Lazarus died, they were angry. They accused Jesus. Lord, if you had only been here, they said, our brother would not be dead. I kind of um, kind of like how angry they are in that moment because it shows us the, the level of trust that they had in that friendship with Jesus, that they could show their anger, their frustration. It's good. I like that. Another example is David from the Old Testament. David was literally at war with his son Absalom, who had been a great disappointment to him. But when Absalom died, he still cries out and he wishes to exchange his own life for his sons in that moment. So even though they were at odds, he still grieves for his son. And that was a form of bargaining, yes. which we talk about in a bit. And then there's also Naomi, uh, the story of Naomi from the book of Ruth. She's someone who was left without a husband or sons when they died. She has only her daughters-in-law remaining, and you know, she, saw, she says, call me bitter, for the Lord has dealt harshly with me. So we see her bitterness and grief. So we have in Scripture this mix of blinding tears and blame and bargaining and bitterness. These are the examples of grief given in Scripture. And they also reveal how God responds to those who are grieving. So there at the tomb, Jesus calls Mary by name. Mary, and reveals to her in that moment the hope of resurrection. With the sisters Mary and Martha, he weeps with them. He weeps for Lazarus, and then he calls Lazarus to come out of the grave. For David, God uses David's grief to make him a better and wiser ruler. He redeems Naomi's loss through the loyalty and care of Ruth. What I see as the pattern is that God is with people in these times of trial. It's not like a magic wand to take away the pain that we suffer, but God is there to help guide us through it to new life. seems to me to be part of the necessary work that we have to do as human beings. We have to bear the burden. You talked about the weight of the loss. It's something that we need to learn to bear. It's also something that we have to learn to share. So Susan, when we are grieving, what should we be doing? One thing I want to say is that the examples from Scripture that you brought forth are just excellent. I really appreciate those. But let me first say that grief is very, very individualistic, even for the same type of loss. I was widowed, and my reactions were my own, as were those of many other widows and widowers who I know or have known. Thus, we probably cannot say what one should do. However, as a possible help, I want to bring up William Worden's four tasks, or I call them desired outcomes, for the grieving process. Because I've found these very, very helpful in the past several years. The first, accept the reality of the loss. I'll have to tell you, back a few years ago, I was counseling a young widow. And she says, if Jesus can perform miracles, he can bring my husband back to life. Fortunately, she has gotten way beyond that now and is engaged to be married. So that was a good end. <laughs> Secondly, after accepting the reality, it's so important to work through the pain of grief. Don't stuff it. 
And I would add here that it is very, very beneficial to express one's feelings. Talk to a trusted friend, a counselor, perhaps a member of the clergy, and even consider joining a support group. Okay, after accepting the reality and working through the pain, adjust to the new environment. Well, for us, the new environment includes uh, masks and social distancing, Zoom and Facebook Live, financial prudence, reevaluation of race relationships and such. Or it could be the new environment that holds a big empty space once occupied by a loved one. Fourthly, put all of these into perspective and move on with life. As we have often heard, it's always darkest before the dawn. And then even in John 16, 20, we read, You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. However, as we grieve, we might be saying or think to ourselves, hopefully so, maybe, eventually. You know, I'll just jump in there and add, I so much agree with what you said about grief being individualistic. Mm -hmm. Whatever our loss is, it is unique to who we are. It is that unique love that we shared for that other or our own situation. But when I was grieving at another time in my life, what I observed about that grief was how isolating grief has a tendency to be because it was my own experience. And there was a time there where I felt like nobody else could ever relate. And it was true that my grief was my own, but it was false that other people couldn't understand and relate and accompany me through it. So this is helpful to me. So the four tasks, accepting the reality of the loss, working through the pain of the grief, which includes usually talking to others about it, making adjustments to a new environment or a new reality, and then putting it all into perspective and moving on with life. I think those are very useful steps. And what what it all does is it draws us from that point of isolation back into community and relationship, it seems to me. And again, that's so individualistic because each person who's grieving is on his or her own time frame. Mm -hmm. I really feel that the world has been greatly helped in dealing with grief by the pioneering efforts of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. This is a name that's probably familiar to many. She identified five stages of grief, but I want to say quickly that these are not necessarily linear. I will read them, but you might go from one to three to two to four, back to one, or one, two, three, four, five. And not everyone experiences all of these stages. But let me just bring these up. The first she indicates is denial. When we say, no, this really, really can't be true. Denial. Secondly, anger. Oh, this is so human of us. Anger against whom or what? Third, bargaining, like we were talking about with David and Absalom. I remember when my nephew was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I just really wailed. And I said, God, please give me the cancer. Take it out of Andrew's body give it to me. I was bargaining. The fourth is depression. I think that pretty much talks or speaks for itself. And then the final step or stage that she indicates is acceptance, coming to grips with the situation. And interestingly, David Kessler, a counselor who worked with Kubler-Ross, in fact, they even co-authored at least one, probably more books. David Kessler has identified a fifth stage, meaning 
And he has a book that he's written that I think is to be released in September about this very subject. So what does he mean by that? A sixth stage of art, uh, yes, of meaning. Well, I think that a lot of that is what we were talking about, putting it into perspective. What can we learn from this? Mm-hmm. What can we take from it to carry on into our own future? And how can it help us heal individually? so fascinating because I do think that that's part of what we do as Christians is we're in the business of making meaning, experiencing being a part of the world, but also understanding it and choosing to act within the world in ways that provide meaning, that provide purpose to the lives that we share. So to me, looking for meaning is about looking for how God can use this experience of pain for some greater good. And I'll have to tell you, I said that it was the fifth stage. It's really the sixth. Sixth. So I made a mistake a minute ago. (laughs) That's all right. So I think that this is part of the story of the cross that we see lived out in our world over and over again, that there is pain and suffering and loss, but that they are never the end of the story, that God takes that pain and suffering and loss and uses it for good and brings new life out of it. And we can choose to be a part of that. It takes time. It, it takes usually more time than we wish it would. But yeah. I think I think sometimes, maybe even years later, we can look back and see, okay, I see how God has brought new life out of that loss that I experienced. So part of what we do in meaning making is we have to be involved and engaged in helping one another. Susan, what can we do for others when they are grieving? Well, in a community of hope, we would answer that question with three words, be there, listen. However, in our current situation with the pandemic, it is frequently impossible to be truly there, offering hugs, holding or shaking hands, sitting closely beside one another. But recently, I talked to a friend who was grieving. She said that she and her family had no idea how much notes that they received would mean to them but they do. Yes, even a little short, I care note. And then phone calls. Phone call could even consist of just leaving a message of, I'm thinking of you on the voicemail, or a quick little chat, letting them know that they are in your thoughts. Or phone call might lead to a long conversation, and that's okay too, because the person might need to talk. But these days, even texts and emails are welcome. So we can, quote, be there, And we can be available to listen in many different ways now. In the 17 years now that I have been a priest in the church, pastoral care has evolved with technology. It's amazing how much I use phones to send little text messages, prayers by email or whatever. And those things do have meaning for people. And sometimes they reach them when they're not ready to be available for a phone call or a visit. But those little touches can make a difference. And we're just blessed with the technology we have right now, especially during this time of isolation. You know, I think about my friends that are in nursing homes. I mean, they can't even go to meals. And just being able to stay in touch, especially by phone for me.
close with one more thought that I think not only do we need to be available by being there and listening, but also to act as needs are perceived or identified. And I'll tell you, I have a list of no-nos in the grief world, but one of them is, quote, let me know if there's anything I can do for you. Just be there, listen, and act as needed, and be aware of the promptings from the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. The Holy Spirit can guide us. Both when we are the ones grieving, we can look for the light that will lead us. And when others are grieving, we can follow that love that will push us to show care for one another. And when we do that, it will help those in need. You know, one of my favorite things about grief comes from the Book of Common Prayer, and it comes from the notes on the burial liturgy. So when we are gathered to remember someone who has died, the Book of Common Prayer emphasizes that the occasion should be characterized by joy. In the certainty, quoting Romans, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. So it quotes Romans there, and then it goes on to say that our joy does not make human grief unchristian. Grief is an expression of love. That's the way I like to think of it. Without love, we don't grieve. So grief is very much part of the love that we have shared. And when we sorrow in the midst of loss and pain, it is deeply connected with the joy that we have shared in love. So true. I've said, I hope when I die, somebody cries. (laughs) I will. I will (laughs) see. If I'm still around, when you go, I will be crying because (laughs) we've shared a lot of joy and love already just in the few years that we've known each other. And I'm grateful for that. I am too. Well, thank you, Susan, for helping us to explore grief today and to explore how that grief is a process that is also connected with our joy. That joy that we share is what we can be focused on as we live. And during those times of loss, we can be focused on caring for one another, caring for ourselves, reaching out for help when we need it. Our joy is complete for today. Again, thank you all for listening. And I want to remind you that if you are overwhelmed with grief, please talk to someone who can help you. You are not alone. Please do listen again next time. And remember that our J-O-Y is incomplete without you. This is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Bano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Music